my gosh. Hi. Corinne, I know this hasn't actually happened yet, but this is past me congratulating future us about how great our live show in Portland, Maine was, and that we're going to kick major boo tea in New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't believe that we have two episodes that come out between the time that we actually did a live show and when we get to talk about it. It's so tough. I know. Just sit here and be like, what did happen? What was life like? Should we try to predict? Uh, should we predict the future? Wait, can I actually tell you something? Oh. Well, should we? Okay. Backing up. Thank you to everyone who came to our Portland show. <laughs> if you're around in New Brunswick, New Jersey, Come. we do have a show Wednesday, April 26th at the Stress Factory. So please yes. come. Please join. And if you are looking to listen back, to these episodes. It will be part of one of our Patreon tiers. So head over to Patreon and yes. see how you get to listen to these if that interests you. This is also Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. That's what I was going to say because, oh, that's yes. Corinne. I'm Sabrina. Because I don't know, sometimes I feel like people just have things queued up and so it will start. And I don't know, maybe you're like, what am I listening to? Hi, it's us. It's us. Um, <laughs> It's us, Jinx. Let's, Okay, two things. I want to hear what you had to say. And then two, okay, um, maybe three things. Two, I would love to predict the future with you. And three, uh, if you haven't already, go watch us on YouTube. Subscribe to our channel. We post all the video versions of our episodes on there. And you get to see our faces. We just hit 10,000 subscribers <gasps> there too. Oh my gosh, congrats. <laughs> <laughs> I just said congrats to you as if it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> It's my podcast. Thank you. Podcast. That was such a uh, Boston accent there. Pa- oh, yeah. been here too long. Um, okay, here's what I was going to say. Yes, please tell me. And this is super freaky. Oh. So over Easter, I was home in Vermont. And while I was in Vermont, I was in my bedroom and I was changing. And I always change in this one corner over by the mirror. And because... It's away from the windows. It like perfectly puts me out of sight from the windows. So I can change with the lights on and no one outside walking by will see me or like driving by. So I always change that one spot and I always, always have. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I look so much like the woman I saw when I was in middle school who came and comforted me while I was being (gasps) bullied. And I had like a full, like my heart went into my stomach because I always describe this woman as like really long, dark hair, wore really baggy clothing. And in this moment, as I was changing and I caught a glimpse of myself, I'm I'm standing in that exact spot that the woman would come out of. And I've got my long, dark hair and I'm, I'm wearing super dark, baggy clothes. And I was like, holy shit, is it me? Am I in the next like 10 years or so going to go back somehow? to myself, it like really did look like me. Like I was really freaked out by it. And I told my old coworker, Amanda, who's super spiritual and into all of this stuff. Cause I was like, I had this really weird thing happen to me. And I think, 
I think it's me. I think it's like a, a future me, like a soon to be future me that goes back. I'm not kidding. My heart has stopped and I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's me. I never have thought that ever before, but I saw myself in the mirror and I was like, that's me. I'm her. Like I see who I saw basically. Like I couldn't, because I never saw the woman's face, but I saw her body and her clothes and her hair. And I, in the mirror, I was like, that's me. I see it. Corinne, <laughs> oh my. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> that is the most beautiful. I mean, I, I mean. <laughs> has, I haven't gone back yet, but I think I do. I think I do. This is what's incredible. Two things. Not only is it the most heartwarming thing in the world to, to put that together, to realize you comfort yourself. You comforted yourself, your younger self, who was being bullied, who was going through such a painful time. But two, Corinne, that means you're going to tap into your freaking abilities and travel back in freaking time. Time. You're going to time travel. I think I will. And here's another thing that's interesting. So when I was talking to my friend Amanda about it, who I who I used to work with, mm-hmm. her and I are, let me get the name of it because I'm, I'm about to talk about the class. So we started that class. Oh, yeah. I Remember saw it I on your saying, calendar. Oh, yeah. I'm taking it. I just took the second class. It is, let me give you the details. Okay, so it's through the Shift Network. And we can put the link down in the show notes here so that people can find it. But it's through the Shift Network. And the class is called Heal, Heal Your Life and Legacy. And it's led by Christina Lee Pratt. And I think there was a, people can do the live sessions, but we're currently, I'm currently doing the version where you get to just like rewatch the live Session, so I'm should not I interrupting Christina Lee. Yeah, you should. We should be doing it at you the totally same time. Should. What the heck? Sign up. Do it. I'm like mad at you, but it, you have you did nothing wrong. <laughs> I didn't, and I also didn't orchestrate this. I was brought into a, another group of people. no. Well, I, there's a I'm bunch excited. of classes. So Sabrina, we yeah. should look. We should look and find one that we want to do together. Oh, you know what would be fun is if you take this one, I take a different one, and then we share our knowledge with one another. And so we have more knowledge. Okay. (laughs) Teamwork. Yeah. Perfect. Teamwork. (laughs) We'll take all of the courses here. Yeah. So I'm, I've only taken the second course of heal your life and legacy, but there's an exercise that you do where you're supposed to go through this meditation and try to see and like visualize your, basically your spirit guides who are also ancestors of yours. So like lineage wise related to you in, in some way. So it's, it's technically supposed to be like you do it four times. And if you're adopted or have different parental and and family units, you can do it however many times you need, but like you would go through this exercise and you would think, okay, I'm going to tap into my mom's mom's side, my mom's dad's side. And then the third time your dad's dad's side, your dad's mom's side, or however your family unit is set up. And so I was trying to do it and I need to do it again because I didn't, I thought I saw five people in these light beings, but then I started to question myself. I was second guessing myself and I was like, well, am I seeing that because I think I'm supposed to be seeing that? Is that, is that real? Or is that just like what I envisioned this to be? And then I started kind of pulling, like at first I was trying to tap into my mom's mom's or sorry, my mom's dad's side. And then I started to feel really guilty. Like, why am I not 
<laughs> trying to first tap into my dad's dad's side. Cause my dad's oh. dad, like he lost his dad. I was like, why wouldn't I tap in there first? Maybe I could make contact on that. So I was just all over the place. You were being critical of yourself yes. while doing it. I need to be way more Zen and just like trust what happens yeah. and take things as they come. And we're currently working on building our, our altars for these spirit guides. So Sabrina, when you were with me, cause you're about to fly in for the Portland yeah. show when we're recording this. When you're with me, we'll probably have to stop in random places for me to pick up like little trinkets to have on my altar. But the point being is someone who's doing the class with me, they did see ancestors. And one of them, she got a very strong feeling that it is her. But like a version of her, her current soul from a previous (gasps) life, like hundreds of years ago. Oh, wait. Okay. My friend L'Oreal, who I worked with on Prodigal Son did this whole meditation. I I think it was a class where she worked with someone, a medium of some kind, and she was meditating and befriending her past lives. And similarly, she was able to communicate with past lives. So it's her, but in different old versions. Lives. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was one of the things that came up in the class. And and one of the women who is doing the class with me, she took it live. So like some of the questions, I ask her a lot of the questions that I have because I'm watching the pre-recorded right. videos, but we're like doing it as a group and in a yeah group setting. And so she is able to answer a lot of the things for me. And one of the questions I had was like, okay, well, if I'm calling upon these ancestral beings, like I believe in reincarnation. So absolutely, how does how does that work? If the lesson that I need is from an ancestor who maybe lived 300 years ago, but they're currently living or like just lived in the 90s or they're living as my dog or like, how do I tap in to that? And it was basically like the whole thing of like, time is not linear. And so you just do get to call upon these different versions of you and of other people and other souls when you need them. That's so true. It's so fat. I mean, it goes back to the conversation of like, your soul can be in multiple places. Like when you pass on, it doesn't mean your whole soul is reincarnated into the next life. Like there's perhaps pieces, fragments all over the place and then timelines. It's just, yeah. And to another fascinating part of this class, I'm only on lesson two. Like I just (laughs) lesson two last night and I'm already like, whoa, whoa. But it was basically saying that there's different terms used and I like won't get into the terms mostly because I partially like forget the actual definition. I don't want to confuse anyone, but basically there's different terms associated with different ancestors who come through to attempt to be spirit guides. And some, some of them are there to like appropriately give you what you need. And then there are other ancestors that will either very clearly not be there with the best in, well, maybe with good intentions, but like will very clearly struggle to be a spirit guide and to come forth, or you won't be able to call at all. And there's a few reasons why that could be. And one okay. of the reasons was that it could just be a lesson that like you have to learn entirely by yourself. Oh, And like, it's just up to you and you can't just like ask uh, for things to be solved for you. It's up to you. But what if I don't know? What if I don't have the answers? <laughs> you can like still ask for signs to okay. like point you in the right direction, but you can't say like, I'm, I don't know, like I'm con- I'm confused with how to best organize my podcast studio. Like <laughs> do it that for feels me, like- that's me and whatever. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Another reason was that they, the term used was like basically that they aren't reconciled. They haven't reconciled their life. So if they come forward or if they don't come forward at all, and there's just like either fuzziness or they're not there, it's because they can't, they haven't looked back on their life and acknowledged all of the good and bad lessons that they've learned learned lessons that they didn't learn, things they did right, things they did wrong. They haven't looked at that and accepted it. They haven't so they can't help you because they haven't helped themselves yet. Oh, that's exactly so fascinating. I am so excited about this. Yes. There was a third piece of it too where it was basically like some of those ancestors who haven't reconciled can you know sometimes we think of them as ghosts or spirits that like show up or linger or they're they're still here or whatever. And you can, we have not gotten to this part in the <laughs> class, and I don't know if we ever will, but in this specific module, but you can help them. So it's like, they need to level up to help you, but you could help them from where you are, recognize what they need to do to level up, to come back, to help you. It's That's ugh, amazing. Energy, I, time, space. It's so, yeah. Spirits. I, I think it's important too, Corinne, because I had this with Joe. Like, you know how you were saying that you were questioning, oh, am I seeing this because I'm supposed to be seeing this or I'm convincing myself. I think the most important part of all of this is just let it happen and don't question it. Because I had the same experience with Joe. Like I saw on either side of me, I saw two kind of white shape figures. And then on the other side, I saw three. And, you know, Joe was just like, go home and write down the images you've seen because maybe you're creating them, but maybe you're not. And maybe if you write them down now and then something happens, you can look back and be like, oh, I saw that. And now that you've put that together, the more you're able to trust what you see. Yes. You just need to kind of like fully let yourself go into it. It was hard too because the image that I saw was this like really light blue background. And then it was like shapes. It like looked literally looked like an angelic, like glowing yeah, figure. Mine too. Like five people. Yeah. Okay. That's that's even more freaky because I I was second guessing myself because I was like, this feels like a very like Christian view of things. And I don't really like identify as like a super Christian person or really Catholic, even though I was raised as Catholic. So I was like, is this just like in me? And then I was trying to like change the way it looked (laughs) in my mind. I was like, what if we make the background black? And then there's like all these neon like sequences and DNA coming through. And then that like came in for a second and and went away and like stayed the blue with the beings. And I was, I was just way too in my head about it. I can't remember if I was reading a book. I think this is from a book. My my goodness, I will not be able to remember it because I, lately I'm like, is this a dream? Is this reality? Is this mm-hmm. a book? Is this a show? I don't know. But I was reading something, I think, where this spirit was in this strange astral plane. And the idea was that it was what they created. So you can... Is this from Many Lives, Many Masters? No, no. Is this from our previous NDE episodes? I don't know. (laughs) But the idea being that you can, you can change it based on your beliefs and, and it's a belief because it's ingrained in you and in your soul. So it is real. Yes. Uh, it's hard to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
because you can't turn off like the questioning I of know. our human brain. Can I tell you one more thing? Yeah. Before we get into this, of course. It's relatively quick, but so I had that spooky experience of seeing myself in the mirror and being like, "Oh my God, is this me in my childhood home?" While I was home for Easter, I also had another experience, and I ran into an owner like one of the owners who had sold their land for my house to be developed. So remember how I was like, no one in our neighborhood knows why multiple houses are haunted. No one knows why my house is haunted because we know the people who own the land for generations. Right. And nothing has ever happened that we know of. Right. Ran into her. And I was like, oh, I've been hoping that like one day I'd get to run into you. Did anything spooky ever happen on the land when you were growing up? And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I don't know. I didn't want to tell her like our house was haunted. So yeah. I was just like, well, there was a house down the street from us. I don't know if you heard, but like 10, 15 years ago, they actually had to have an exorcism on the house. Like a priest had to come yeah. and I was describing some of the things that were happening. And she was like, oh my gosh. And I, for a minute, I thought she was going to be like, no, that's so weird and really dismiss it. She didn't though. I wrote down some things she told me because I didn't <gasps> want to forget any of them. Oh, my gosh. She said that the house she grew up in, so her parents who owned the land, she said things did happen a lot in that house. She doesn't know about the land below the farmland that was turned into this development of 30 houses, um, but she does have some ghost stories from her own childhood home. She said that the basement was so spooky and she would not be able to go down there without her heart racing. And as a kid, she kind of was just like, this basement's so creepy, but maybe I'll grow out of it. And she said, as an adult still, and she's she's probably she's got to be in her 50s or 60s now. She said her heart will heart palpitations. She cannot, as an adult, go into that basement. She just like everything in her body, her whole fight or flight. Oh, okay. So that house is still there. Out. You've seen that house. The house is still there. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In Vermont, maybe we'll drive by it if you're Wait, in yeah. <gasps> Ooh. with me ever. She said also they would come home and bureaus would just be flipped. Like huge pieces of furniture would just be turned upside down. That is so Lights scary. Lights would go on and off, which is like the most benign part of all of this. She said lights would flicker. Um, and then she said that one time her brother had a bunch of toy models all set up on the ground on the floor. I don't like where this and is going. A huge, heavy mirror. Well, no toys came to life, thank God. Oh. That's what you were thinking. <laughs> that is what a I was huge, thinking. A huge, heavy mirror <laughs> came off, like flew off of the wall, like forward into the room, smashed down, and basically broke all of his toy models. And then they go in. They pick up the mirror because it made a huge noise and everything is broken below. They pick up the mirror. The mirror isn't shattered at all. And it's not ripped. Like it was a giant heavy mirror. Yeah. There's no rip in the wall. Like it was no picked nail up. came undone. Like and thrown. It was perfect. All of the things that, that were locking the mirror into the wall were still in place. It was picked up and removed and chucked down onto the toy models. Oh my gosh. So actually, I think there's a poltergeist that's living in the neighborhood. That also sounds so evil. I mean, to flip dressers, to flip furniture upside yeah. down. And oh my gosh, I know that this is 
it's terrifying, but for you to finally, there's so many things that you're putting together in your life right now. I know. It's this like, is like I was information seeking over yeah. Easter. I was like, give me, give me all the answers. Everything is coming full circle. You're getting answers to questions you have had your entire life. Yeah. Or things that I just had assumed. Like we, I mean, we had just, from what I had been told, yeah. there was nothing spooky or supernatural about the land. We and were an anomaly. So no, you're not. Street. Turns out the first house on that land was very has a lot of Wow. has a lot of stuff. And I think still has stuff because she was like, I can't go in that basement. I do not like that basement. We should have her on the show. So we should just we should do a campfire stories where all of your neighbors and this woman c- come on to tell their stories. <laughs> yeah. You have to say how many houses away or like what mileage away yeah. from my house you are. That's the only requirement to come on. <laughs> I gotta love that. where exactly it's pinpointed. We'll do yeah, neighborhood like, specific ghost stories. Freaking amazing. Yeah. Wow. My dad, I was with my dad when we ran into her and they were just kind of like catching up a little bit. And I totally interrupted and was like, <laughs> asked the question. Excuse me. My dad was looking at me like, what the heck? We're like talking about family members. And I'm like, so there was a demon down the road. <laughs> I mean, do you is know your dad about this? really surprised? Because I feel like that no. is very you no. to have done. Not at all. Not at all. I think he thought I was going to talk about the podcast, but I didn't at all. I was just trying to get get answers. Some interviewing. Trying to get answers. You're an yeah. investigator. Okay. I'm excited to hear what we're learning about. Well, teach us, teach us, Sabrina. <laughs> Of course, I did a, you know, big history deep dive once again. I think you're just a historian at this point. Paranormal enthusiast second, historian first. I researcher. Really appreciate history that buff title. Yes, I'm yeah. a history buff. Well, before I tell you what I specifically researched, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. As the story goes, there was a young woman who traversed many seas making her way all the way to the land of Scotland. Her travels were long, tireless. She arrived weary, but the greenery and landscaping before her brought life back into her eyes. She saw a future, the opportunities endless. And then she was reminded of her purpose. Her journey was not over. No, she had miles to go. She was to arrive at a place named Edinburgh, a place rich with history, both past and future potential. Perhaps she would make a name for herself. Perhaps she would be featured in a paper and become the notorious, the incredible, the dazzling Sabrina Tiana Broga. <laughs> dazzling. I like that. Um, that's a joke, but also kind of a true story. Um, it's not. That's real. Well, it's I- real to me. <laughs> well, I did. Okay. So when I was a senior in high school, um, we performed a play called 12 Incompetent Men and Women, which is a spoof off of 12 Angry Men. And we flew to Edinburgh and performed in the Fringe Festival there. And oh. my mom loves to tell me that she loves to say that I was featured in a paper and very specifically mentioned for my performance. And I swear, I was like, that is not true. And she goes, yeah, they specifically mentioned you. They they said your performance was great. And I was like, no, they didn't. Sure enough, we found the article and it truly just lists my name as the character that I played. 
as oh. a, along <laughs> along with everyone else who was in the play and like the character they played. Um, she was a proud parent, so she she, rem- was. she remembered it the way that she wanted. <laughs> she to. wrote rewrote history a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find it. My mom did send me the article, so I'll try to find it and we can uh, put it in here. But anyway, that was just you know a little teaser into my life, and also inspired because I've always been fascinated with that area. I did a lot of history tours when we were there. So when I saw this story, I was like, hell yeah, this is exciting. But it's also really dark and sad. So way before I stepped foot into Edinburgh, there was a whole lot of stuff that happened. Obviously, history. (laughs) (laughs) You know, time, the world, What is time, though, as we just talked about? So this is a kind of story that has happened not only in the history of Edinburgh, but kind of all over the world. It's something we have talked about in a lot of different stories. It's a story of poverty, plagues, and murder. So we begin 300 million years ago. Back in that time, there were a bunch of volcanoes that erupted and flowed violently over the lands, forming three volcanic hills, Arthur's Seat, Calton Hill, and Castle Rock. And I'm pretty sure I hiked Arthur's Seat when I was there. We did like a sunrise hike. After those volcanic eruptions settled, there was a glacier that came in and split on Castle Rock Hill. So then it carved like two valleys with a big volcanic rock ridge in the middle. And that ridge is where Edinburgh was built. It already feels pretty magical. Yeah, very. Just based on that, yeah. And also they built a castle, like right on top. So Even more beautiful. Even more. And so it was naturally sloped. So they built the castle at top of it and then kind of going down from it was a really long road called the Royal Mile and there were just a ton of off-shooting streets, alleys. There was something called winds and they were winding streets that were public throughways. But this is, I think, something that has been portrayed in a lot of different stories and history. Often it was the castle, and then the lower you went, the more impoverished the community. So it went the castle. Then it went, Mm. you know, the court members. And then it went the middle class. And then it went to the very, very poor. Also, this is really fun fact. Edinburgh was the home to the world's first skyscrapers. Because you know how the city was built on these ridges. So a lot of the homes that they started building down below were really low to the ground. And so they would stack houses on top of one another, sometimes 14 to 16 stories high. Oh, they were making apartment complexes before apartment complexes were even a thing. But it sounds like in a really shady way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they lasted-ish. I mean, actually, they're pretty, they're sturdy enough that they served as the foundation for the Royal Exchange, which is still there today. So they were doing something right. Okay, so they're, these are the first skyscrapers technically in the world. And the very first official or, or acknowledged skyscraper wasn't built until 1885 in Chicago. And this is like the 1500s, the 16th century or, or earlier. So way ahead of their time. Okay, so I said that there's the winds, which are the public wayfarers. There's these are different types of streets. So there's the winds, courts, entries, and the close. And the closes were private roads with locked doors or gates at the entrance, which sadly is where the poor and impoverished lived. So these are the high rise buildings. They're super congested. Lots of people kind of squeezed in there, and the gates could be locked at night to keep the so called undesirables in their closes. 
which reminds me of the Titanic when they start closing the gates. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's just, I don't know what to say. It's awful. It's sad. And it gets even more sad. sad. So this is where our story takes place. A close. Mary King's close. Every street was named after a notable person or profession. And Mary King was a woman kind of way ahead of her time. Most of the streets were, hardly any of the streets were named after women. But this one was. She, when she got married, kept her maiden name. Again, way ahead of her time. And she had her own business. She was a fabric merchant. She was incredibly successful. And she and her husband had four children together. Her husband, Thomas Nemo, was a voting member on the Edinburgh Council. And when he tragically passed away in 1629, he left the seat to his wife. Then Mary King was able to advocate and vote on the affairs of the city and look out for those who were less fortunate. So she was doing a lot of good. She was also, you know, a boss, a mom, and helping people. When she died in 1644, the city renamed this particular close after her. And I think it was before it was named after her, it was named after a man named Andrew King, but they weren't related. And I also wonder how Andrew King felt about the fact that they were like, sorry, you're out. Mary's in. He got booted out. Yeah. Okay. So basically there are a ton of closes in this time. This is just one of them. So it's like one long street with all these high rises, a lot of poor, impoverished people living here. But this story is kind of specifically focused on Mary's King clo- Mary King's close, but it also applies to kind of all of the closes during this time. In the 16th century, the population of Edinburgh was growing rapidly. I think there were 15,000 citizens in 1550. And despite being a relatively large city, they were running out of space for people. And this kind of reminds me of like overcrowding in a lot of the prisons or psychiatric facilities that we've talked about. And this is why they had to build all the houses on top of each other. And it kind of created this underground feeling. And it also gives off a Corinne would hate this. It's unhygienic type of energy. Uh, do they just put their pee buckets out the window and just like let it I, drop 14 stories. I truly, I have written. Here's a question that the answer, Corinne, you will either love, but also hate. And the question is, what do you think it meant when someone yelled, Gardiloo? Gardiloo? Yeah. Gardiloo! It means the loo is now exiting the window and coming down for your head. Correct. You are very right. <laughs> It was the phrase called out when someone was going to empty their chamber pots out of their windows into the street below. So it was like, guardaloo. And then everyone on the street would run and run away so they wouldn't get. It's just like, I know going to the bathroom is just, it's a thing that all animals, all living things (laughs) basically experience. But it's just so weird for me to think about how as humans, we have these like social constructs and we we view ourselves a certain way and we have all these hierarchies and yet we're throwing our piss out the window. I think about that a lot at, this is weird, but like when I used to work in a corporate world, you know, like you'd, there'd be someone who's 
so much higher up and like had so much power and authority over you. And then you're like sitting in a bathroom stall, just like releasing your innards together. It's weird. <laughs> I mean, it, it humbles us, right? We're all humans. Yeah. Oh, which reminds mm-hmm. me, I have to tell you the story. I can't do oh, it on okay. here. It's too soon. Okay. Maybe maybe, maybe in a future encounter. <laughs> it's been three days since. That's all. That's the clue. And that's all people need to know. <laughs> um, okay. So like I said, there's very little to no sanitation. There's poop, pee, excrement just flowing the streets. And there are uh, maybe 16 plus people squeezed into one tiny room. So this just like this area is just overcrowding. It is, there's no hygiene no sanitation and very little food. So these are, I'm going to list a couple of things. It also sounds disease ridden with that many people. You are just reading my mind today. (laughs) History buff Corinne has entered the chat. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to list a couple of things that were going against those living in the close. Poverty, poor sanitation. It's crowded. There's little food. There's lack of care from those who are in power or in the like elite of the society. All of which led to famine, starvation, dirt, rats, disease, and murder. It was said that the place was so overcrowded and unmanaged that it was the perfect place for predators to prowl and murderers to hunt. There were people disappearing every day, and it was just like no one really seemed to care, or that those who did care couldn't find help in order to find their loved ones. And naturally, the 1500s, 1600s, it is impossible to d- discuss those without discussing the plagues because there were numerous diseases and plagues that killed thousands. But didn't they all come in on rats pretty much too? Exactly. Like, yeah, My goodness, the Corinne. There. <laughs> did you do oh, something? Is that you... the next part? <laughs> did you research Sorry, I'll be quiet. <laughs> no, no, I don't it's know amazing. What this is. I mean, that's that's the tapped in. (laughs) I mean, that's why I said in the beginning too. This is one of those stories that starts out very, very similar to so many others. Yeah, exactly. Once you know about one plague and the poverty in one area, you kind of know it everywhere. You can guess the rest. Yes, there were two massive plagues during this time in Edinburgh. One of them was like the 1400s, I believe, and they recovered from that. But then. The summer of 1645 came one of the most devastating plagues because there were not just one plague that ravished the area, but two. Um, It was hot, cramped, rats and sewage occupied as much space as humans, and the two plagues were ravishing the city simultaneously. It was the bubonic plague and the pneumonic plagues. So pneumonic plague, which I had never heard of, was a terrible form of pneumonia, which, you know showed itself in severe coughing that caused internal bleeding, blackening of the skin. Uh, And then even though that's terrible, even more terrible was the bubonic plague, which caused the infected to break out in pus-filled boils that could grow to the size of an orange and then burst and spread, making the disease (laughs) even more deadly. Oh, it's so gross. It's so And gross. I love Dr. Pimple Popper, but I do <laughs> not like I do not like these pus-filled no sacks. Sacks. Yeah, that's um they are gross. Yeah. 
Um, let me find. I have pictures for this next part of of the boy of the boy. <laughs> Actually, I, no, but I come. I'm kind of interested. <laughs> Your timing. You're like, let me find the pictures <laughs> of what. I'm scared. Put a trigger warning in the beginning for that. Um, <laughs> no, but okay. So these plagues are just wiping out so many people, but specifically those living in impoverished communities. There was no cure. There was no real understanding of what was happening. And entire families, entire communities were dying. And, you know, you might wonder, was anyone attempting to aid these sick? And it's a great question. Corinne, I will tell you. (laughs) I should have asked that question. (laughs) It's okay. Was anyone helping all these people? Thank you for asking. That's a great question, (laughs) Corinne. There were doctors or medical professionals, but sometimes they were just as terrifying as the plague itself. They, you know, sometimes weren't doctors really with a passion to heal the patients, but more had the task to help keep those living up on like, you know, higher up on the Royal Nile alive. So they were kind of like all about containing the disease rather than really helping. Also, they looked like monsters. These men were masked. The masks were made of rubber with long curved beaks and large round eye holes carved out the front, which you've all seen the photo of this. I This is the photo that I was going to show, not the boils. Yes. I told my friend Allison, her boyfriend Daniel, it works in the medical field, and I don't remember what event they were going to, but I suggested that he dress up like that, and I don't know if he did. I think they were looking for those types of masks because they're so freaky. They are so freaky. That actually isn't a terrible costume idea for us for one year. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Maybe one day we'll do it. We'll dress up as... Oh, you know what would be fun? is What? Is doing sort of like a... Like a good couple costume or like best friend costume. We're still a couple. We're a couple. Yeah. We're just different. (laughs) Here's how much of a couple we are. Your, our anniversary is the same day that you and Nick got married. Yeah. Like we we just share so many of like the milestones you have in your romantic relationship. Just so happen to also fall on milestones with me. (laughs) I don't know if that just means. That we're also a couple, or if you just favor big moments on certain days. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, we will find out, but I guess, in the future. A pairing costume could be cool to be like, you you both choose to dress up as the same thing, but from different decades, you know? Like someone oh, like is doctors. a doctor. Mm. Yeah, like someone dresses as that, and then someone else dresses as a doctor from like 1940. Yeah. That's... A good idea. It's also yeah, a good you group, could be a group costume. costume. Yeah. Oh my gosh. See, that's All how much decades. we are partners. We have the same <laughs> idea at the same time. Uh, okay. So they look like that. They're a bit scary. People are also dying so rapidly that they are just being hauled onto carts like this mm. and stacked on top of one another. Some of them weren't even dead yet and like, you know, are buried before they're actually dead because they just look so sick and they're just like being tossed, you know, without really any care. The very first plague doctor in the summer of 1645, his name was John Palicious and almost immediately he died after taking on the role because the job was deadly, literally. 
Um, right, because they can't protect. No one really knew what was going on. Yeah, they, they still barely no do. And I do want to clarify that, you know, yes, they look like monsters and maybe their task was to specifically protect the, you know, more elite of society. A lot of these doctors sacrificed their own well-beings to help contain or also aid the sick in the way that they knew how or thought that they could. The next plague doctor, his name was George Ray, and he actually was pretty diligent with his work. He would go house to house. He would lance the boils of the sick. So he was Dr. Pimple Popper back then, but he was front lines, you know, physically having to handle the illness. He was, you know, the doctor who wore the long beaked mask, the long black robe, the very traditional plague doctor outfit of the day. And a fun fact, those masks were filled with spices and flower petals. And it was like to smell that. And they believed that it would help prevent breathing in the illness, which unfortunately did not work for the first doctor, but did work for George. Interesting. Yeah. But sadly, George's story at the end is very sad. So despite his efforts, the sick were still sick. And those who were not sick were now getting sick. And, you know, everyone was just dying. The Council of Edinburgh did not know what to do. And then someone had an idea. What if they bricked up the area of Mary King's Close to prevent any of those living there from entering or exiting, contain the plague to just that area? And if you think about the repercussions of that, it would mean that everyone who lived in the Close would die. Yeah. This is horrible, but it's reminding me of so many other places, right? Like if we think about tuberculosis, that happened at so many hospitals, just like put everybody away. It's it's quarantine. But unfortunately for this, it sounds like there were a lot of people that weren't sick yet that were just about to be inevitably become ill with the plague. Plagued. 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 Yeah. I mean, okay. So here's the one I'll just say. Records during this time was not necessarily a priority unless you were a king or a queen. And then, of course, the records are written. So there's a lot of debate as to whether or not the council actually moved forward with this callous plan. Some say yes. Some are actually certain it was done that the council trapped the innocent men, women, and children in these nearly underground cities and brick by brick covered every entrance and exit until they were certain that the plague had passed. Others say that the story of closing in and trapping those in Mary King's close is just a myth, that it was either created by, you know, the over-exaggerating of storytelling over the years, or perhaps it was a story that the Edinburgh Council told the more elite members of society in order to reassure them that they would be okay and the plague was contained. That's an interesting theory. I can understand, though, that it that it did happen because it reminds me a little bit of Handmaid's Tale, too, right? Where yeah. it's like, you would think, like, wouldn't they see stuff? Wouldn't they know? Wouldn't they make moves and take action? But it's like, no, you hear something and you're like, that's wild. And then you hear another thing and you're like, man, things are really getting bad, huh? And then All eventually sudden. it's too late. It's It feels like it happened so quickly, but yeah, well, it did. And it, it does. Did. Yeah. There is a part of me, after I tell you this little fact, that I, that makes me believe that they actually did trap the uh, people in the closes mm. because after the plague, George Ray, that plague doctor, somehow miraculously survived, which I don't think the Edinburgh Council 
expected to happen. And he survived. And the city of Edinburgh refused to pay him. So he died before ever seeing a single cent. God, that makes me burn, a fury burn deep inside me. Yes. But it's like, what can you do? Like, that's one of the things where it's like, God, you just want revenge on everyone who wronged you. But then it's like, what are you going to do? You're just going to get yourself killed. And you have to live well to die well. I learned that in my class. You got to be at peace to be able to be the best version of your soul and spirit self. Live well to die well. I like that. Okay. Well, a lot of these people are not living well, nor are they dying (laughs) well. Um, No. So, yeah, there's no way to actually know for certain if these people in the closest were trapped or not. Unless, I don't know, we are able to talk to our ancestors from that time or, I don't know, get a time machine. Or we can maybe ask the ghosts. Because ever since the 17th century, people have complained of hearing scratching coming from the other sides of the brick walls like people are trapped trying desperately to scratch, claw, or dig their way out. There is one story that is, they believe it is a child specifically trying to climb their way out. Again, it's really hard to know. Um, but like I said, with the carts being piled up, it's there's a lot of people who were buried or burned who were not actually dead yet. So it's possible that the scratching is the, like, you know, of those types of spirits who Mm. were buried and tried to scratch their ways out, ways out, their way out, but, you know, died, sadly. Also, after the plagues, Mary King's Close developed a very haunted reputation, like almost immediately. And this is what I love about this is, you know, records were really poor back then, unless it was done by the, you know, more elite in royals. So the only reason we know all of this is because King James VI, who went on to become King James I, the King of England, was obsessed with witches and loved ghost stories. Yes, he's one of us. He's one of us. He was so obsessed that he made sure any ghostly encounter or story was documented. Snaps for him. (laughs) What a man. What also, a man, what a man, what a man. I didn't do much, re- much research into like what his, you know, his reign was like. It's very possible he was not a great guy aside from this one fact. Oh, and here I am cheering him on. <laughs> <laughs> I probably covered him in the Tower of London story and I don't remember at all. <laughs> There's so many names. I know. It's okay. Okay, so this is where this story comes in. And I also heard it on the Haunted Places podcast episode about Mary King's Close. The story takes place in 1696, 40 years after the plague. A man named Thomas bought a new house for his wife, Orinda, and their family. But when Orinda found out where it was, she was terrified. The home was in Mary King's Close. She did not want to live in such close quarters or in a place that saw so much death. (gasps) According to Charlotte, when she arrived at the home, she was met by a neighbor maid. And this maid told Charlotte that the homes were haunted, that spirits moved objects, groaned in the night. Sometimes their body parts would show up. And Charlotte was so terrified of ghosts because this is the time of, you know, accusing people of witchcraft and Satanism. And 
burning of witches. I thought you were I thought you were gonna say this is the time that people were really afraid of ghosts. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that time is also now. <laughs> I think it's all the time. Yes, but this is like very rooted in religion and believing that spirits were those trapped in hell trying to get out and wreak havoc mm, on mm-hmm. earth. So she was so terrified, Charlotte, that she quit her job and she was like, I'm sorry, you're moving here and I cannot live here with you. I just can't. I'm too scared. So now Arinda is so heartbroken. This maid who had been with them their whole lives is now gone. And she has to move into a notoriously known to be haunted neighborhood. So they move in and she and Thomas pray before bed. They slept okay. And they go to church the next day and ask the congregation to also pray for them and protect them. When they returned home, Thomas went to go take a nap as Arinda read from the Bible. And all of a sudden she heard a man clearing his throat. So without looking up, she thinks it's Thomas and she's like, what do you need? But Thomas didn't respond. She looks up and loses her breath because a gray face was standing before her. He was a translucent man, clearly in pain. This man wanted something. He was groaning and moaning and reaching out to Arinda until his hand touched her shoulder and she screamed. And next thing she knew, she was passed out, waking up to Thomas checking on her. I thought she was going to wake up possessed for a second. Oh, well. That, okay. Oh my God. Does that happen too? <laughs> Not to her, but <laughs> as Thomas and her argued about the experience, because again, Thomas is not one to believe in the spirits. The gray man appears again and Arinda tells him to look. So Thomas now, they both are looking at this man and all of a sudden out of the man's head comes the spirit of a child's head. So it's this weird morphed, I'm thinking like Mr. Floops animals, creatures, Mm. heads sticking out of heads, limbs kind of all coming out of the spirits. And these hands start reaching out and grabbing Arinda and Thomas. And finally, Thomas is like begging, please leave, please leave. But all of a sudden, there's a hand that goes into Thomas's chest and he starts to embody something else. It's chaos. And his he like looks at Arinda. He, his voice is different. His mannerisms are different, but his eyes are his. And Arinda can tell he needs help. He's in pain. So Arinda prays and prays. And finally, she grabs the ghostly arm that is reaching into her husband, rips it from him. And when she pulls back, <laughs> she finds her hands covered in a weird liquid. And what she is holding in her hand is not I the hand of the spirit, but her husband Thomas's heart. Shut the front door. You're kidding. Well, I'm not kidding, but I will say that part of the story, that part of the story I very much believe has been um, dramatized. This this feels like a bedtime story that they would have told five-year-old kids going to bed and been like, I don't know why my child so misbehaved and won't (laughs) sleep through the night after telling them. Right. Yeah. But this is what was documented in King James's, uh, you know, ghostly diary. Jeez. um, Wow. So that is horrifying. But I understand the anger of the spirits. They were all discarded there. They were left and became this glob of uh, discarded humans. And now they need to 
bring others in. They're gripping for to get out. Yeah. Or they're angry and they're just wanting to kill everyone now. <laughs> it's it's hard because it's like these stories are so spooky and I I keep feeling myself being like, oh my God, how horrible. These ghosts are so scary. But then I'm like, wait a second, but you literally just told me the most horrific backstory yeah. of why they why these people died and it's so sad and their souls I feel so bad for. So I'm like, I'm struggling right now between how scary the haunting is I and mean, why, why yeah. they're there. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like the hauntings can be terrifying, but the reasoning doesn't have to be terrifying. Like, like you said, these people were, you know, dying and confused and didn't know what was happening to them. And then they weren't really being well taken care of. Some of them were just being thrown into body dumps and not really checked to see if they were dead. So there is this desire of like, help me, help me. I want answers. I don't know what happened. I'm so confused. As you can tell, it's very safe to say that uh, Mary King's close is haunted and is very spooky. Years later, a lot of the closes kind of became abandoned and dilapidated. Um, so a lot of them were demolished. But those that remained, including Mary King's Close, served as the foundation for the Royal Exchange that was built in 1753. So now they are truly subterranean and underground. And you can visit them. You can take tours and learn so much more. This is one thing that was really frustrating is I feel like the organizations who run the tours have done a really, really good job of making sure information about Mary King's Close and the underground history is kind of a well-kept secret so that they can share it. So basically, that is all the history that I know, but I know there's so much more. What I do know is that there are public records of some spirits. There's one very, very well-known spirit. It is that of a young girl named Annie. So back in 1992, a woman named Aiko Gibbo, who was a Japanese medium, visited Mary King's Close. She was on a tour, and when they approached one specific room, she was like, got feelings of dread and sadness. It was so heavy that she was like, I cannot step inside this room. But then she sensed a child and like a child who needed something. So she gathered the will to step into this room and finally communicated with this young girl. She found the little girl crying in the corner of the room. Her name was Annie, and she told Aiko that she couldn't find her family, and she was very, very sad. She was around nine years old and was very confused about her death or where her family was. And so since then, it has been hypothesized that she was infected by the plague, possibly abandoned or taken away from her family in fear of them becoming contaminated. There's been a lot of attempts to discover who she is, but again, there's not a ton of records. There's some theory that she's perhaps the daughter of Jean McKenzie because her daughter was unnamed and around that same age. It's just so sad to think about all the kids that probably experienced something very similar to her, just being abandoned and so scared. And Yeah, but there is some hope in the story because this little girl told Aiko that she was also sad because she couldn't find her doll. So Aiko went out and shopped and found a new doll for Annie. Oh, They called the sweet. doll Tartan Barbie. And when she received the doll, Annie was so much 
happier. And the room got lighter. There was less like dread and sadness. And since then, there has been like a world movement where people who from all over the world come bring toys, dolls, gifts, letters, all types of things for Annie, and they leave them in her room. And once a year, all the dolls and other toys are donated to the Sick Kid Friends Foundation, all except the original doll. That's so sweet. I love this. I know. And then this is the drama. Okay. On April 17th of 2019, they received a panicked radio call from a guide informing them that Annie's doll was no longer in her usual spot. Oh. They spent hours searching the entire site and could not find the doll. Did they think someone stole it? Is that sort of what the... Or another ghost took it? I don't know. But a whole like social media movement was formed. There was a hashtag, bring the doll or bring back the doll. It was, everyone was like, we need to find this doll. People started doing research, trying to find what the doll was so they could replace it. And they ended up finding that it was part of the Daisy Doll Airline Collection designed by a fashion designer and in the 1960s. And so they were able to find and replace the doll. Oh, so they never found the original. They never found the original. Okay, well, at least they found a replacement. Yes. That's good. To appease little Miss Annie. So Annie's a lot happier now. Um, People who visit have had encounters with Annie. Uh, Another ghost at the Close is believed to be the very last resident of Mary King's Close, Andrew Chesney. He was apparently forced to leave the close um, and he was apparently very proud of his thunder box, which was like his toilet. So he, <laughs> he was known oh, to like, that sounds like something my dad would name, but this is even better. Like, you know, how the thunder you, box. you know how you hide in your corner so that the people outside don't see you nude. Yeah. This man, Andrew would specifically open his doors while he was on his thunderbox and wave at people as they passed by. Okay. So that was his, either he thought it was hilarious or that was a kink. Or both. I don't know. <laughs> or both. Started as hilarious and then became, hmm. He likes when people laugh at him. Yeah. So his spirit has been seen wandering through the alleys. Sometimes he looks worried. Uh, other times he's just going about his ghostly life. Um, there's also a woman in a black dress often seen. And some people say she's the spirit of Mary King herself, but I think that's just like wishful thinking. There's no way to actually Mm. know. Um, sometimes stones are thrown. Um, people experience sudden drops in temperature, the feelings of being touched, emotional swings. There have been footsteps heard in empty rooms. There are glimpses of things moving in the shadows, mysterious lights, apparitions, you know, all the typical hauntings. So maybe you all should check it out yourself. Like I said, there aren't many um, articles or a ton of information about Mary King's Close specifically, unless you go and do the tour yourself. But there is a novel, which I saw in my research that I'm like, oh, I should definitely read this. It is called The Haunting of Henderson Close, written by Catherine Cavendish. And it is a fictional story inspired by a lot of the stories of life in the closes during this time. And it has a devil or two and is like paranormal and spooky and has 4.2 stars on Amazon. And I might be reading it. 
And then yeah, to end this, that is the list. I will show you a photo. Let me of what the close looks like. This is just one of them. Oh, so it's completely underground. I want to go. All of the underground towns and cities, those things just are like, there's one in San Francisco that we covered. There's so many all over the place. That's, it's just so spooky. I really want to go explore, but like on a guided tour, I don't want to be by myself. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll clarify before you take me there. (laughs) Before you're like, you said you would go. (laughs) I just send you down. Good luck. Yeah. Ah! Survive the night. But yeah, that's the story of Mary King's close. Dang. I mean, fascinating. It is, I mean, it is true what you said. Like, there's so many elements to the story that we've heard before with other historical stories from this time period, or really just so many different times. It doesn't matter if it was the bubonic plague or tuberculosis or coronavirus. Like, there's there's so many things that repeat throughout history, and there's so much sadness And with that, oftentimes comes ghost stories. So, yeah, I mean, this is just like what, this kind of reminds me of like the catacombs too, where it's like, how many people, how many spirits are are there currently? And how many spirits like have the opportunity to move on, but haven't? And could you, could like, I'm just like, is there ever going to be a moment where this place isn't haunted, where these spirits do find peace and they do get to move on? Where some powerful medium comes and whisks them all away? Or is this like always going to be some sort of stain? And then if we think about time and how time isn't linear, like what if- (laughs) I was just going to say this, yeah. Yeah, what if hauntings are forever and those spirits did move on, but they're also here because there's- The timelines are continuous? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I am hopeful because when I was doing my research, it didn't seem like there are ghosts that are angry per se or really devastated. I mean, minus Annie, who now has been appeased a little bit. So hopefully that, I don't know, that applies to all the spirits down there, that they are finding some sense of peace within a ghostly community. Totally. Yeah, that's actually kind of fun. Like they have their own little commune. <laughs> there's there's so much room for activities. They have a whole houses down there. So many apartments. <laughs> Do you think everybody still lives in their same house or in spirit form? They're like, oh, I'm going to upgrade to my neighbor's house. I always thought their curtains were quite divine. <laughs> I mean, considering how jam-packed all the spaces were, I don't know. I know. That's true. That would kind of actually suck if they're all just still crammed crammed together. And I do wonder from a spirit perspective if they're haunting the basically like ruins that we see today or the dilapidated version of it or if they're experiencing it the same way that they were when they died. Hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully they get to see it at its prime, like before all the illnesses, before. Yeah. Well, even today, it's it's kind of very well I maintained is not the right word, but they've restored it to what they mm. believe it looked like minus the running rats and sewage down the streets. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a story from a listener. Okay. 
This is from Shona? Shauna? Not certain how to say your name. I apologize. Shauna seems right for like... Okay, we'll stick with Shauna. Okay. Hello, ladies from Bonnie, Scotland. It's raining. Shock. Horror. (laughs) (laughs) I'm listening to your most recent encounters about the person who witnessed someone feeling sick on a ghost tour, could taste blood, etc., And it made me think of something that happened on one that I had been on. A few years ago, I finally got my then-boyfriend to agree to go on a ghost hunt. He didn't believe, etc., etc., probably why he's now an ex. (laughs) (laughs) Now, first you need to know, he was not the brightest spark. (laughs) And it was a little bit dense. But he was pretty. And I'm not being mean, but I can because he cheated. (laughs) This is important to the story, though. Okay. <laughs> oh my God, I already love this. Uh, even if it wasn't, I was I I like knowing all this stuff. Me too. All the details. We went to Mary's King Close in Edinburgh. This is where there is a town under the city of Edinburgh, and I believe it's been sealed to keep the plague at bay. Anyways, the ghost hunt leader was a psychic, and he began by placing us in a circle and saying a prayer. Everyone was silent and holding hands in the circle. The leader went on to tell us what would happen on our overnight ghost hunt. It finished, and he asked if anyone had any questions. And my boyfriend chirps up in this absolute belter of a statement. Sorry, I didn't catch all you said because all the horses, they're pretty noisy. Nice, but dim boyfriend looked so innocent as I whispered, What horses? There are no horses in Edinburgh City Center at midnight in 2015. Oh, <laughs> the psychic was so in love as we were standing as where we were standing was at the stabling area where the horses would be tied up needless to say my bloke was teacher's pet and up front with the guy and embraced his new gift like he owned the oh. joint <laughs> speaking about it later i said to him did you not realize when we were in the city that it was odd to hear horses trotting and neighing And he said, no, I didn't think of it until you said that to me. Guess what? He still didn't believe in the supernatural. How? Okay, I have to say to that, he does. He's just scared. He doesn't want to say it. Yeah. He's either scared or he's just so incredibly stubborn that he won't go back on. He won't change an opinion on something. Even though it was very clear, everyone acknowledged his statement was him hearing something that was not there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's not like everyone just teamed up with Shauna and was like, let's make this guy feel like there's no horses here. And when there clearly are, like, that would be so bizarre. Anyway, Shauna, glad he's next. I have so many stories that I will send on at some point, but you've made me giggle remembering his innocent face asking to retell the rules as the horses were too <laughs> loud. Thanks for entertaining us through lockdown. Me and my house ghost say hi. Love, Shauna and Ghosty. Shauna, I want to know about your ghosty. Yeah. Yeah. And play this for ghosty so that ghosty knows that we read your email. Yeah. We gave ghosty a shout out. I do love, it sounds like the the house ghost and Shauna live together in harmony. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, a nice coexistence. Yes. I simultaneously love this story and want to shake Shauna's ex-boyfriend and be like, how? How can you... Yeah, deny. Give, give the reasons. Yeah. I want to hear a what list he, of why. How does he explain that experience then? 
does he just has he just convinced himself that those horses were real? Yeah. Will he even entertain? Yeah. You know, what is his what's his argument? Because it sounds like he probably is just saying no, 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 no. It can't be. I don't know. It also makes That's me so wonder weird. why certain people have experiences at places where other people don't. Like Shauna seems to be in tune with the spiritual world and totally believes, but her boyfriend who doesn't believe and as far as we know, was not in tune with the spiritual world is the one person who had the experience there. And there was a site, like the tour guide was psychic. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like the tour guide didn't know. I mean, knew obviously what was around that they were where they were in the city, but it sounds like her boyfriend didn't know. You know what? Maybe it's because I bet he was the only skeptic on the tour. Mm. And so the ghosts were like, the we horses targeted him, make him fully believe. Cue the I horses. <laughs> the whole performance. There's just like, there's a ghost from 2017 with a boom box. that's just playing horse noises. <laughs> I was picturing it more like, like no play. one will know the difference. I was picturing it like a play. Like there's a stage manager and cue the yeah. horses. Yeah. They have their, their headset yeah. and their clipboard and they're running around. Yeah. <laughs> the horses are in hair and makeup. Quick, get them out. <laughs> well, well. What a fascinating yes. episode. I feel like there's so many interesting ghost stories that we hear every single week. And not all of them necessarily make it on my list of, oh, I really want to go see that place. And I feel like this is on my list. There's so many places in Scotland, but Edinburgh specifically that are haunted. Yeah. And totally. I would love to do a little trip there. Maybe you and I can go Hopefully together. Hopefully we get to. Yeah. yeah. We'll head to Edinburgh. So yes. long as I said that, right? <laughs> You'll learn once if we not, go. We'll still come. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Come to our live show in New Jersey on April 26th. And, and then, I don't know, join our pyramid scheme. Tell everyone about our show. Join our Patreon if you want to listen to our live show. And come join Campfire Stories on Patreon. Watch us on YouTube. Rate and review on iTunes. Are those all the things? I feel like no one listens to this things. part anyway. No. But we say it every time. So yes. maybe one one time someone will listen to the end. They're cooking. They forgot. They can't get to their phone. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's even going on? Well, we love you. Yes, we love and you. And we love our editor. Yes. Thank you, Christina. <laughs> Shout out, <editing>. Christina. <laughs> yes. And we will see you on the other side. Bye.